my name's Kate Middleton, so if you were expecting someone else's talk, then you're in the wrong venue. Um, and feel free to move. But just in case anybody's Googled me, it's worth pointing out uh, that I'm not the same one that's going out with Prince William. Um, so, sorry to disappoint you there. But um, I did hear someone saying the other day that, it, assuming that they get married, that my signature uh, is due to be worth a lot of money in the future. So if anyone would like me to sign anything, I'm very willing. But <laughs> A little bit of background about myself and how I came to, to work with the Mind and Soul team. I actually started out as a medic, uh, studied medicine first of all at Nottingham University. Uh, I always felt a very strong call to be involved in the field of emotional and mental health. And as a result, I actually uh, changed direction and retrained as a psychologist, and particularly looking at this whole area of emotions and what they are. And um, I worked, I've worked in various different places. Some of you may have come across me in various past lives, if you like. Where I've ended up now is somewhere I never thought I'd be, rather a surprise, I've ended up working for a church. So I would never have expected to be working for the church, but I find it both the most exciting place to be able to work as a psychologist. I love the contact I can have with people and the way I can interact with people. Um, I love the difference between that and a more sort of sterile clinical world. But also, I, it is a challenging place to work, and it brings up some interesting issues. There are some interesting extra perspectives on those issues. And the one I want to talk about today is probably um, one of the, the main ones for me, because it's something I've always been fascinated in. And the reason is that the psychology and all of the background to emotion is something that's so key to our everyday lives, but also the everyday lives of the people who we work with. So those of you who work in the church, perhaps in pastoral care or counselling, or if you're in ministry in any way, basically the thing people tend to come to you with difficulties with is something generally to do with their emotions. There's always an emotional component that's going on. Maybe they're experiencing an emotion that they don't know how to deal with, an emotion that they didn't want to have, that they're not sure how that fits in with the, the other things that they want to be doing. Maybe they've developed another problem as a result of their emotions, as a result of trying to cope with difficult emotions. And I became fascinated in this subject very early in my career because it struck me that there was something so basic about emotions, about the way that we were created, and I'm going to talk lots more about that today. And yet, they're the thing that seems to cause so much problem, so many problems. And I see so many people, I still do day to day, who are limited and held back from achieving their full potential because of difficulties that they have that are related to their emotions. I watched many incredibly able friends and colleagues of mine, and over the years, inevitably, that has happened, struggle sometimes with emotional things. And it, it really sort of got me interested in what, therefore, the purpose of emotions is and how that fits in. And for me, as someone who works largely with clinical issues, how does my view and understanding of emotions affect what I do? And now that I work for the church, that brings in a whole other element for me of questions about how we, as the church at large, approach this issue of emotions and how that affects the way that we deal with other people. So what I want to do today is, is, is try and pull together some information. The, the field of emotion research is a hugely varied one. It brings in perspectives from many different dif disciplines. And I want to pull, in, to pull together some of those things and take a, a snapshot and look at what our worldview should be there for as the church. Because I think that the most common misconception about emotions if, if I was to ask you, if I asked myself what I think the most common misconception is, is basically that it's possible to avoid them, isn't it? Quite often we, we talk about, oh, so he's, she's just so emotional. 
as though that were a bad thing. Oh, they, they let their emotions get in the way of their judgment. There's, there's such a, a, a common misconception that emotions are something we should, can and should be able to avoid. And more than that, I would say that we have this misconception that it's beneficial in some way to manage to avoid being disrupted and influenced and affected by our emotions. And, and I want to question that this morning and, and get, to get us thinking about, about whether that's right or not. Here's um, somebody who famously is, is without emotion. Any Trekkies in the audience? I'm afraid if there are any Trekkies, this is the, the new young Spock from the most recent film, not the old, the old Spock, because he just takes a better picture, apparently. <laughs> But Spock, of course, was somebody who in the films, classically, in case anybody doesn't know the backstory, and I have to admit I had to read up on it a little bit, uh, had a Vulc- one Vulcan parent and one human parent and therefore is human, but experiences his emotions in a very different way, doesn't really experience them very often and, and keeps them very much at bay, doesn't let them influence the way that he approaches life. And as a result, we are led to believe, is of a super- superior rational intellect, He is able to think calmly and rationally in the moments when all the useless humans are running around and screaming. He's calmly analysing what to do next. So his lack of emotions is beneficial. And there is a whole field of research looking at emotions which looks at this question of what happens to human beings when something causes their experience of emotions to change. And one of the approaches is a chap called... um, Antonio Damasio, he's a very famous um, sort of a person in the full field of emotion because he wrote a very influential book, uh, which this quote is from. And he works with people who've suffered brain injuries, uh, perhaps because of illness, perhaps because of car accidents or trauma, something like that. And he talks about these people who he comes across in his clinical work who have, for some reason, lost their emotions. And this is a quote from him talking about one such patient. And he says of him, I, see, I never saw a tinge of emotion in my many hours of conversation with him. No sadness, no impatience, no frustration. So we have here real-life spocks, if you like, people whose the experience of emotions has drastically changed. So, the obvious question, are they therefore fantastically rational people? Are they running the country? Are they the people who are making the big decisions and teaching us new things? Well, no, they're not. They are actually people who are profoundly and catastrophically affected by their loss of emotions. They are people who cannot function in a normal way. They struggle terribly with social relationships, with their family environment. They, they, they find that they make it, find it very difficult to make basic decisions. It has a huge impact on their everyday life and on their ability to function efficiently as humans. So losing our emotions, far from actually turning us into clever, rational, super people like Spock, seems to have this massive impact on how well we're able to function. It's something that also has, uh, has affected another field, the field of AI, of artificial intelligence. And the field of AI basically looks at trying to create computers who can think and act or, and, and appear the same way that humans do. And in the early days of AI, when people were starting to produce computer programs that modeled things like language acquisition and learning and, and that sort of thing, emotions were very much ignored. Because after all, who would want to reproduce emotions? They're the thing that we would really prefer not to have. So they didn't do that. The computer programs left that out. And this is a quote from a chap called Steve Grant, who is an AI specialist. He's a a fascinating chap, uh, decided uh, to spend eight years in his garage building a a robot orangutan, which 
Maybe a good reason not to listen to what he says, but <laughs> I believe in the field of AI that makes you very influential. And he says that this, this, whole, this whole sort of Spock phenomenon is very mis, mis, misconstrued. He said, Mr. Spock isn't always as bright as he looks. It's Kirk who always comes out on top because he's got emotions and common sense and all those things that Spock doesn't have. Here's another quote from uh, actually a neurologist, but talking about this basic error that the field of AI made for many years when they didn't include emotions in their plans and in their models. And he says that their mistake was to regard emotions as an artifact of subjective experience, just something weird that we experience, which is a bit of a nuisance. And therefore not worthy of investigation, they left it out. And increasingly what we're finding is that AI models of the, the brain, of things like language and decision-making, they have to include something in the algorithms, in the, in the plans, that mimics, in effect, what emotions do for humans. So they too have found that you cannot leave emotions out of the equation. And yet we still, don't we, admire people who seem to be able to operate without emotions. We still, in our human way, view it as something that we think we would be better off without. This is a quote about uh, President Obama made, just made in 2009 from Maureen Down, who's a, a New York columnist, saying, you know, he has a bit of Spock in him and not just the funny ears. I must look at a photo of him and look at his ears because I can't say I'd ever noticed it, but... She says he has a Vulcan-like logic and detachment. And that's, you know, that's a positive thing. We admire that. Even though we know that actually, in reality, without our emotions, we're sunk. So what about in the church? We're here today very much to focus on what the church thinks about issues of psychology and emotional and mental health. So what perspective does that bring to this equation? And it's interesting because if you look for quotes for writing about emotions uh, written by people who are in the church these days, it's all very positive. But if you talk to people on the ground, so to speak, about what their experiences of emotions, they very often will talk about feeling that certain emotions are are undesirable, sinful, directly things that you shouldn't have. As a good Christian, you shouldn't get angry. You shouldn't really be anxious, things like that. Oft quoted are passages like this one from Matthew, which I will come back to later, saying, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So there is a feeling, particularly in some churches and in some parts of the church, that some emotions are sinful. They are a bad thing, that we should basically strive not to have them. So how do we as the church line that up with the knowledge that's coming from all these academics looking at emotions from all their different perspectives? This is a, a, what's called a Purkinje cell. It's one of the biggest neurons in your brain. And neurons are the cells in your brain that, d that do all the communicating, that all the messages are passed down. They're amazing structures, absolutely amazing how they use sort of electrical impulses and things to send all these messages that then make up all the people that we are in this room. And did you know that you have about 100 billion of those in your brain, which, which is a lot? <laughs> And every single one of those cells has one to a thousand connections with another cell. So that's about a hundred trillion connections in your brain. It's phenomenally complex. The brain is the most amazing, most complex structure. It's the most complex structure known to man, still way beyond any of the clever things that man has created. Way, way, way beyond anything that we've created. I, I personally believe that we will probably never completely understand it. It's, it's phenomenal in its complexity. 
Your brain is only 3% of your body weight, but it uses up nearly a quarter of your energy. It's so basic to who we are. If we took your brains away, we, we, you know, we would all be nothing. So the brain is an incredibly important part of who we were created to be. It is constantly learning throughout our lives. It's never static. Your brain is constantly changing, constantly developing. So I would ask this question, this amazing brain, which you can see here on this, on this which is an MRI scan. The previous one was a, a beautiful electron micrograph scan. You can get some lovely pictures of, of parts of the human body now. If we see the brain as so much a part of creation... If we take, as from the words famously known from the psalm, if we see it as something that is fearfully and wonderfully made, do we really see emotions as some kind of unfortunate, mistaken byproduct of the way that God created the brain? A sort of, whoops, that, that, that will you know, keep them busy. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> do we really see emotions as something that God put in there sort of by mistake and that we should really strive to avoid? It's, it's an interesting question. And what I want to start off today by thinking about is this question of what is an emotion there for? And I want to draw in some of the, the bits of research and really sort of summarize it all for you, therefore, about what emotions actually are and what they've been found to be. So to start thinking about that, I just want you to think about your own experience for a minute because we're all examples of people who have emotions every day. So think about the last time you experienced an emotion Maybe happiness, excitement about coming here today. Maybe anxiety if you were one of the people at the back of the queue this morning. You thought you might miss the whole thing. Maybe you've had some things going on for you this week that have caused some frustration or anger, something like that. Think about for a moment that experience and when that was for you. And ask yourself this question. What is it about the way that you were feeling in that moment which makes you so confident to name that as an example of that emotion? So when you think, yes, I was definitely angry then, what is it about the way you were feeling that makes you so confident that that's what it was? Let's just think about that for a minute. And there are three elements of emotional experiences which are usually common, which people bring up if you ask people this question. And I want to show you how each of those tells us something about what the function of emotions are, what they were put there for, because I believe that God put them there for a very deliberate reason. So the first one of those, I don't know if anybody was thinking of examples of anxiety, a common emotion, might have experienced something like this. Butterflies in your stomach. And emotions bring with them, don't they, a physical sensation, particularly negative emotions more so. For positive emotions, it's, it's more general. But in most negative emotions, there is a strong physical component to that experience. And one of the main roles of emotions is from that physical experience just to, just to grab your attention. Because if you suddenly start feeling a certain way, if your physical state changes, it, it, it alerts you that something has changed, something is going on. So a friend of mine was talking to me about an incident reasonably recently where she uh, was filling her car with petrol and, as usual, not really thinking about what she was doing at all. And she, she said that as she was halfway through in the job, suddenly she said she just felt sort of anxious, sort of felt her stomach going a bit funny. She thought, well, that's weird. And then she looked up and realized she was putting the wrong fuel in. Easily done. So sometimes our brains use our emotions through that physical change to grab our attention. Something is happening and you need to pay attention to it. So they grab our attention. And here's a quote from William James, who is a philosopher and psychologist uh, and a medic actually also, writing at the end of the 19th century. 
And he wrote some very influential early um, works talking about emotions. And he was very, very, he found that thought that this physical component of emotions was very, very important. And he said this, he said, the bodily changes follow directly the perception of the exciting fact. And our feeling of those same changes is the emotion. He thought it was so important that without that physical change, it just wouldn't be an emotion at all. And it's true that the physical component is very, very powerful in some emotions. And its role is to grab our attention. So that's your emotions are very much like a warning flag that your brain uses to alert you or a light on the dashboard of your car. Something needs you to pay attention. Let's think about the second thing that you might have um, experienced as part of your emotional experience. And this is a picture which is, is designed to illustrate joy. And it illustrates really well what I think is another common element, which is the way that that physical change that's involved in emotions makes us want to do something, doesn't it? So if you're feeling angry along with the physical change and maybe the increase in heart rate and, and stuff, you will feel a desire to do something, hit the person who's annoying you or walk out of the room or whatever it is. And emotions do prepare us for action. So a secondary part of that physical change is that it is about preparing you to do something, hopefully to act or react in the right way. So if you walk out of of this conference today and you're walking through London on your way back to however you're getting home and a bear jumps out, which is reasonably unlikely, but if that happens, your brain immediately grabs your attention as if it needed to. There's a bear in front of you. You probably noticed it already. But, and it stimulates a physical change, which is also all about preparing you to run away or to fight, that the well-known fight-or-flight reaction. So part of an emotion is preparing you to do something. And psychologists call this action readiness. You are ready to act. And here's another quote, a little bit because of the lighting, a bit difficult to read, so I'll read it to you. It's from, again, from Antonio Damasio, from, from the, the, the specialist looking at emotions. And he says that the human body has it at its disposal two methods by which it can change its circumstances. It can do so by directly altering behavior, causing, for example, shivering or reflexes. Alternatively, it can resolve the predicament by inducing physiological states that lead individuals to behave in a certain way. So emotions are your brain's way of persuading you to be more likely to do certain things. So that if, if you are angry, you are more likely to hit out. You are less likely, say, to stand still. If you are feeling very anxious, you are less likely to remain in that situation. You're more likely to move somewhere else. So it's not directly making you do something. It's not, um, not taking thought out of the equation completely, but it is strongly influencing how you act. And so that's another very important part of emotions. They influence what we do, and they make us more likely to react in certain ways. Of course, another very strong part of emotions is how they affect our thinking. And thinking is very powerfully tied up with emotions. And emotions genuinely do make us think. They stimulate the parts of our brain which do all the analyzing. So they stimulate, stimulate the cortex, and they, once having drawn your attention to something that's happened, they then give you the opportunity to analyze it. So when the warning light goes on in the dashboard of your car, with any light, you pull over and you check it out. Is there a problem? Am I running out of petrol? When did I last fill the tank with petrol? Thoughts like that. So once your emotion has triggered your attention, your cortex then analyzes the situation and starts to look at, do I need to do, I need to do something? Is this a situation that requires me to act? And quite contrary to our 
look to our often off to the sort of things that we often assume that emotions interfere with our rationalizing and our thinking actually there's good evidence that emotions help us to think in a more time efficient way they help us to deal with the situations in in an appropriate manner and this is a quote from Jonathan Haidt who's a social psychologist looking at emotions and he says that it is only because our emotional brains work so well that our reasoning can work at all emotions are so closely linked up with the way we reason and approach the world that you cannot really separate them and that of course is what the AI people were finding too you can't really have an efficient mind without putting emotions in there somewhere there are a couple of other um, functions of emotions that it's very very important to mention as well while we're thinking about this and one of course is communication and uh, these are different facial expressions of different emotions. And one of the fascinating things about humans is that if you take a sample of human beings from all across the world, all different cultures, from cultures who've been in touch with, with, Western, uh, with Western, the Western world, cultures which haven't, what you'll see is the same facial expressions for the same emotions. And they are very, very, they're repeated very exactly. This is something that was originally noticed by Darwin. Here's a quote from him saying that the young and old of widely different races express the same state of mind by the same movements. So there is something about emotions as well that is about communicating, that is about the fact that we were never designed as human beings to exist in isolation. We were always designed to exist as part of a team, as part of a crowd, as part of a community. It's part of the way that God designed us. And emotions are a very important part of that. Here's another important function of emotions. Um, For anyone who's wondering, it's a fork in the road. So emotions are involved in (laughs) decision-making. Just checking if you're still awake, you know. So sometimes we come to life, there are decisions we have to make. And again, it's so commonly we assume that our emotions get in the way of that. And they do make decisions harder sometimes if there are emotions that conflict. But the evidence is that emotions are very powerfully involved in our decision-making. And not just the big decisions, but the everyday little decisions. If you think about this morning when you came here, did you have uh, toast or cereal for breakfast? Did you have tea or coffee at the coffee break? Which will you have at the next coffee break? And how do we make those decisions? You can't make them based on a rational analysis of all the pros and cons of tea versus coffee and which would I like. Let's go, oh, I'll just get my piece of paper out and I'll write that out and eventually in half an hour I'll come to the conclusion. <laughs> and here's a quote from another, another couple of people in this sort of emotion field talking about this. And they said that few people would argue that real humans have the time and knowledge to perform those massive computations. And if we assumed that that's what humans did, it would lead us to believe that humans are hopelessly lost in the face of real-world complexity. And that, of course, is what the AI people found. If they don't put something in that mimics emotions, these computers just can't cope. They can't, be, they can't cope with the basic complexity of the world that we exist in every day. So emotions have a very important role in decision-making. And you can think of emotions, therefore, sort of in summary, a bit like striking a match... And emotions are triggered in the first place, like the match being struck, because your brain detects that something significant is going on in the world around you. So there are parts of your brain that their whole job is to look and process what's going on around you in terms of how it affects some of the basic goals that you have in your mind. And we've talked about some of those in the main sessions today as well, about the the goals and the aims that govern our lives. We all share some basic goals. Staying alive is, is a good basic human goal, which, which almost everybody operates by almost all of the time. 
So if you do something, again, you leave here today, you're going to obviously have a very, very dramatic journey home. After you've circumvented the bear and got round it, you then accidentally step out into the road and there's a bus coming straight at you. Now that conflicts with your basic goal of staying alive. And so your brain will trigger a very strong emotion as a result. There are other goals that we all have to do with maybe our past, maybe things that we've learned, things we've been taught in our families, in our churches perhaps, things we've learned, conclusions we've come to. So if your brain detects that something significant is going on, it triggers that emotion. And of course, as we've learned, the emotion, first of all, is experienced physically, which grabs your attention, focuses you to the fact that something is happening, draws you, if necessary, out of what you were doing previously, It also then triggers the analysis from the thinking part of your brain to have a think about what is going on and ultimately to come to a conclusion, do I need to take action or don't I? Is this something I need to do something about or not? And the way emotions are designed to to function, all the research tells us is that this is a relatively short process. It's got clear cut. It has a definite defined beginning and a definite defined end. So just like when you strike a match... It burns, and then once this is done, you've come to the decision whether you need to take action or not. It goes out. The match goes out. The emotion is over. And the whole, there's a whole field looking at emotion processing and looking at this way that emotions naturally, if they're functioning appropriately, die out, and, 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 and we move on from that experience. And emotion isn't something that continues to plague us. Of course, the problem is, is that for many of us, the people we're supporting, maybe for ourselves in our own lives, We have moments where that isn't what happens at all. The emotion doesn't go out. It does continue to plague us. And we'll look in a little bit about what happens to cause our emotions not to to function in this way that they were designed to function and how that can happen and what we can do as a result. But it's important to come from a foundation of understanding the way that that it seems emotions were designed to function within the brain. And, of course, what emotions are doing, in effect, is they're acting a bit like one of these, like a smoke alarm, Their job is to warn you that something significant might be happening. If your smoke alarm goes off, it is a signal to you to go and check it out. Is something going on? Has has something happened? Has something caught fire or not? And that's just what your emotions are to do. They grab your attention and trigger you so that you can go and do some further analysis. So bearing all of that in mind, we have to come back to asking ourselves this question of, As Christians, do we believe that emotions are sinful? With all the things that we know, because we we have this vast amount of knowledge from all these different fields about the way emotions work, and with the things that the Bible teaches us as well, do we believe that emotions are sinful? And I would have to say no. However, we also have to be aware that emotions lead to actions, and that sometimes those actions can cause us problems. And it's very difficult sometimes to separate the emotion from the action. But we must do that because the emotion itself isn't the problem. So the verse that I've already mentioned from Matthew 5, talking about how anyone who is angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. If you look in a a slightly different translation, that's the NIV. If you look at the RSV translation, it talks about you being liable to judgment. And an emotion is never an excuse. It's never a get-out clause. I work a lot with, um, with teenagers in our local schools in, in Hertfordshire where, where our church is. And quite often they will say, well, I did that because I was angry, miss. You know, that's why I did that. And it, that isn't a sufficient excuse. You are liable to judgment if you are angry with someone, if you are experiencing a strong emotion. Your actions still hold you. You'll be held to account for those things. 
Ephesians tells us, be angry, but don't sin. Be careful how you are reacting when you're under the influence of your emotions because they might lead you to be at risk of doing certain things. And it's true that under that influence of the emotion, we are more prone to being impulsive. We are more prone maybe to taking actions and to doing things which may not be the wisest decision. And we'll look a little bit in a minute about how that happens. This is a passage from in Genesis where God is talking to Cain who, of course, at the time in in the passage is is a bit cheesed off because his brother's offerings have got a better response than his, and he's angry. And God says to him, in effect, if you look at the passage, God is saying to him, you know, you could respond to this in a really positive way and think about why his offerings would judge better than yours. But he says, be careful because sin is crouching at your door because he knows that human beings who are angry don't always deal with it that well. And of course, we know that Cain doesn't. He goes on to murder his brother. So his anger does lead him into sin. But it's not the emotion that's the problem. It's the response that is the problem. And we must be careful of that. And more than that, I think, therefore, we have to ask the question, both of ourselves, but as the the church, we have to ask the question, when are we and the people we're supporting and caring for most at risk of being led into sin by their emotions? Because we know that as humans, that's something that can happen. And are there things that we have perhaps unwittingly done that has made that worse for some people? Are there things we can do to help them be less likely to have that problem, to help them to deal with their emotions in a positive way? way. And I want to look at three of those things, basically, three of the ways that emotions can be a problem. And the first one of those is something, that, a phrase that was first coined by this chap, this is Daniel Goleman, wrote a very influential book in 1995 called Emotional Intelligence. Has, any, has anyone read that? There's normally a few people who have, yeah. Now his basic thesis was that emotional intelligence and understanding the emotional world is as important in terms of how effective and how, uh, how much we achieve in life as your basic IQ, your basic intelligence. But he also coined this phrase emotional hijack to describe something which the neurologists and the psychologists and the doctors had seen in terms of the way that the brain works under certain situations when certain emotions are being triggered. And if we return to the model that we had, uh, that we've seen already of the way that emotions happen. So something significant happens, it triggers an emotion, you notice it because of your physical change and you then analyze what's happening. Imagine that scenario where the, the significant situation is that I've walked out and there's a bus coming straight at me. Now, it's not much good if I'm standing in the middle of the road doing a full analysis of the situation and of what my possible actions and reactions might be and which one I should take and is this something I should pay action to. Meanwhile, the bus has hit me and it's all over. So your brain has to have another option. It has to have a quick emergency course of action which bypasses thinking. There are some basic life and death scenarios where it needs you to just get out of the way or just run or just fight or whatever it is. And that's what emotional hijack is all about. An emotional hijack is a pathway in your brain which in effect does what you'll see on the screens now. It is a fast-track option. And the amygdala, which is the part of your brain right in the middle that controls these very basic emotions of fear and anger, can completely bypass the thinking part of your brain and trigger through this physical change a reaction to the situation before you've had chance to think about what's happening so you can get out of the way. 
And this is what happens um, where, I don't know if this happened to anyone else who perhaps doesn't like spiders, so you walk into your kitchen or wherever, and across on the tiles on the floor, you see something that looks like a spider. And before you know it, before you thought about it, you run back to the door, you've shrieked, you've called your significant other or whoever it is and said, ah, there's a spider on the floor. And then looking over as your thinking brain catches up with you, you realize it's just the top of a tomato. It's also the reason that in, I think it's New Zealand, that statistically the most dangerous spider in New Zealand is one not that actually isn't poisonous at all, but what it does, it's quite large. Uh, and uh, it, the, it, because of the way, it, the, the habitat it likes to have, it quite often lives in cars. And what happens, of course, is it crawls out when people are driving and they crash. Because their instinctive emotional reaction is to panic, is to, to panic swerve, get out, I always remember driving with my mother once, and uh, we were, there was a, b- a bumblebee in the back, and she doesn't like them, and I, I didn't really want to alert her, so I just very quietly and calmly just said, oh, just to let you know, because I didn't want her to see it and panic. There is a bumblebee in the car, and she got out. We were on a roundabout. She just got out of the car. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. So this is what happens sometimes when our thought processes just don't get a look in. And when the teachers about those children, the teenagers who have done whichever stupid thing they've done this week, came to me and says, what was she thinking? Sometimes the response is, well, I suspect she probably wasn't thinking. She was reacting in the impulse, in the moment. And teenagers are more prone to this because their their emotions are stronger and more powerful and they're just not as good at controlling them. It's one of the things they're learning. But we're all prone to it. So that's one way that your emotions can lead you into doing things that perhaps in the cold light of day you would perhaps wish you hadn't done. And of course what's happening here is that instead of acting like um, the smoke alarm which warns you that something significant might be happening, you are treating your emotions like every time they go off like the smoke alarm, that there definitely is a fire. So every time the smoke alarm goes off in your house, you're reacting as though it was definitely a fire. When we all know that the most common cause of smoke alarms going off is, is this. So if you treat your emotions in the wrong way, you will find that you're responding them to a way which is at worst just inappropriate, at best inappropriate, at worst could lead you to do something that you might wish you hadn't done. Let's look at another way in which emotions cause problems, another very common way. And this is focusing on the thinking stage, the stage that was completely bypassed the last time. Because it's all very well if what your emotion triggers you to do is to do some nice rational analysis of the situation. How should I, you know, somebody came to me at work and they said something nasty and what I need to do is rationally analyze, do I need to respond to that, how does it affect me, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens much more often to us humans, if we're honest, is that the thoughts that are triggered by that thinking process are not always that helpful. So maybe somebody said something nasty to me and actually what it triggers is a fear because maybe I was bullied when I was a child and that's really frightening for me. So there's a whole load of thoughts associated with that. Maybe there are basic beliefs and thoughts that are triggered by the fact I've had an emotion. I remember talking to someone who was struggling with jealousy and who really struggled with that thing of, I should not feel this as a Christian. It's a really bad thing to feel. Maybe there are thoughts that go along with that. And these unhelpful thoughts are the, the basis of cognitive behavior therapy for anybody who works with that or uses that approach or has come across that approach. And cognitive behavior therapy looks at the thoughts that we sometimes get caught up in which are unhelpful. And the reason they're unhelpful is because they actually trigger more emotion. In, quite apart from being part of the emotion dying down, they trigger other emotions, generally more negative emotions, which then, of course, trigger more helpful thoughts, so more emotion. And you get this negative cycle building up. And if you are prone for reasons perhaps of your past, 
maybe something to do with some personality types are more prone to thinking in some of these unhelpful ways. One of the reasons right, Rob is saying you know, he tries to avoid should and ought statements because thoughts that begin with I should always, I ought to be able to do that are classic CBT unhelpful thinking patterns. If you are caught in cycles and you're prone to thinking in these unhelpful ways, it's a bit like having a brain like this, full of balled up paper and kindling and dry leaves and bits of wood and things. So when the emotion match is struck, instead of dying out, running its natural course and then going, what you end up with is something like this, a real emotional blaze going on inside your head. And people will say, you know, this happened on on Monday and, and I can't shift it. I still feel dreadful. I just can't get the thoughts out of my mind. It's It's still upsetting me now. People will talk about how sometimes they experience emotions and they don't know why. Their emotions never really go away. And clinically, we talk about what's called free-floating emotions, so particularly anxiety. You'll get people who say, I feel anxious all the time, and there's not really a cause. And sometimes these sort of smoldering thoughts can lead you to never really get rid of these negative and unpleasant emotions smoldering emotions build up into big fires as well, which are much more difficult to deal with. They can feel very, very powerful, very immense, and people therefore struggle, and they are therefore more at risk of succumbing to other things in an attempt to deal with their emotions. So perhaps struggling with things like alcohol or drugs or self-harm or whatever it is that they have resorted to in a desperate attempt to deal with their emotions. Let's look at the the third way that I want to mention. And this is basically reminding us that emotions are about grabbing attention. That is their job. If they were in a company, they would be running around in this T-shirt because their job is to make sure that you listen to them. Their job is to be the troubleshooter, to alert you to the fact there might be a problem. So in a way, they're a bit like... One of the beautiful small child. I don't know if anybody has young children. I have a, a daughter who's just coming up to five. This is children on a good day. But what happens to those children when they are trying to get your attention? So when I'm on the phone and she wants to talk to me or something, and what happens on those days when your children suddenly turn into this? Because their job is to get your attention, and oh boy, are they going to do it. Now I ask you, what happens when I am on the phone and my daughter is at my side because she wants me to do something, when I try and ignore her? Does she go away? No, (laughs) because she's trying to get my attention. So she makes more noise and does more things to try and grab my attention. And emotions are very similar. And what I'm talking about here is what happens if we try and suppress our emotions because their job is to get our attention. Now, suppressing your emotions is, to some degree, a normal, healthy adult skill. And it is very important, isn't it? I mean, I would say as a parent certainly any other parents out there, you have to be able to suppress your emotions to some degree to successfully negotiate parenthood. Children push you beyond any limits of emotion that you've ever experienced before in your life. Well, they they have me. (laughs) Some of us, because of our jobs or other things to do with our life. Funnily enough, I I spoke at at, at an event one time and somebody was telling me about caring for her husband who was extremely unwell and she said the same thing. The emotions that she has to deal with and she knows she can't take them out on him because it's not his fault. So having that ability to control your emotions is important. Are there any teachers here? A few teachers. Yeah, you have all my respect. I don't know how you do it. As teachers, you have to be able to control your emotions because if the classroom of 30 kids is driving you crazy, you have to deal with that in an appropriate and calm manner. Well, most of the time, I guess. 
So as an adult, it is important to sometimes suppress your emotions. It wouldn't be appropriate if we were all just expressing them here, there, and everywhere, at the slightest thing, weeping and shouting and everything all over the place. I'm not suggesting that. But if you habitually resort to suppressing your emotions as the only way that you know how to deal with them, you will, you're putting yourself at risk. It may work on your basic everyday day-to-day stuff. But what happens when life throws something at you that triggers some emotions that are a bit more challenging? And, and life will probably throw things like that at you if it hasn't already. And we know that emotional ill health is increasingly common. Almost half of all adults will at some stage in their life experience an episode of emotional ill health, be that depression, anxiety, a sort of some stress-related problem. And the more that we are resorting to suppressing our emotions as a coping strategy, the more at risk we are of that. Because if you keep doing that, then there may come a time when that doesn't work anymore. And you may then have to resort to something else in an attempt to deal with them. It's also a problem because what happens is that those emotions tend to finally bubble to the surface at the times when you're most vulnerable. So perhaps when you're on your own, when you're tired, when um, there's other things going on, and people will talk about that. If anybody's ever worked in particular with someone struggling with self-harm, very often you will hear people say, you know, it's when I shut the door at the end of the day and suddenly I'm overwhelmed by just how awful I feel. And the only thing that they know to do in that circumstance to get rid, to deal with those emotions is the self-harm. So suppressing our emotions can cause us problems. So what I want to ask you today is just this question. As the church and for ourselves, do we need to change our view of emotions? Because my experience is that if we treat our emotions as something that they were never designed to be, then we risk coming into problems. If we let our emotions make all the decisions for us, we've, we've promoted them way beyond where they were ever designed to work in the company that is our brains. So we might need to change the way that we think of emotions and understand how they are designed to work. And I would propose that there's three basic things that we need to do to change our view of emotions. So that's both us as individuals, but also for the church. And I'll be looking also in a minute at how we should deal with our emotions, because that's very important. But the first thing that we have to do as I've been saying since I started, is, is accept our emotions. We have to take on a worldview as Christians and as individuals that accepts all the knowledge and understanding that comes from these many complex fields about what our emotions are and how they function. And we have to accept them. They are sometimes inconvenient. It would often feel, feels like it would be easier if they weren't there, but they are vital to the way that our brains work. And as Christians, we believe that therefore they are part of the way God designed us to be. We also need to develop appropriate levels of control. So for some people, that might mean learning more control. Some of us might find that our problem is, is that we react too much with our emotions. For others of us, it might mean that we need to learn to sometimes express them, sometimes let them come out. We need to get that right balance in terms of how we control our emotions. And we need to learn how to process them healthily. That the whole field of research looking at emotional processing and how that match dies out and, and the things that can get in the way of that looks at these things like suppressing our emotions and how that interferes with the way they were naturally designed to be processed. And particularly if emotions are difficult or painful, sometimes we don't let them be processed because we're just trying to get rid of them, to push them away. 
And that's where some of the thinking from uh, around post-traumatic stress disorder comes from, that if people have had traumatic experiences, sometimes because they're trying to suppress those because it's so painful, what then happens is the emotion bubbles back and the memories and everything associated with it bubble back to the surface periodically. So we do need to learn how to process our emotions in a healthy way, both for us just in our everyday life, for the people we care for, and as preparation, because should anything ever hit that is that bit more challenging for us, we may well need to draw on those skills. And I want to turn to think, in thinking about how we should deal with our emotions, to just a fantastic example, to Jesus. And I get really excited about Jesus, not just because I'm a Christian, but as a psychologist, I get really excited about Jesus. Because in effect, what you have in Jesus is God in the body, and the brain that he designed. So if you want to look for someone who knows how to use the human brain, Jesus is a pretty good example. Because he knows what emotions were. He knows how to use them. So it's a fantastic way to look for some examples of how to deal with our emotions. We also know that Jesus was without sin, which is helpful. Because we know that Jesus experienced a whole range of normal human emotions. Just some of them listed there in no particular order. Negative and positive, he experienced those emotions. So we can look at Jesus and the way that he dealt with certain situations in his life and the way that he dealt with some of these emotions and take from it some really valuable lessons for us about how we deal with our emotions now. And I want to look at three examples. If you're writing these down, everything today is all about threes. So three examples from the Gospels of the way that Jesus dealt with his emotions. And the first one is taken from this passage in Mark's Gospel. This incident is mentioned in other Gospels, but I love this account for reasons which will become apparent. And it's where Jesus went into the temple, saw the money changers and all the people misusing that space and, and threw the tables around. And the Mark's, uh, Mark's Gospel account tells us this, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So here's a great example of Jesus demonstrating something that to us is fairly familiar as as anger and and acting out on it. And it's really interesting to look at some of the detail of this passage and, and to think about what that says to us about how to deal with emotions. And the first thing is something about avoiding that emotional hijack which I've talked about. And it's very interesting that Jesus did not react straight away. This is why I love the Mark's Gospel account of this, because it gives us that vital bit of information which isn't present in the other Gospels. Jesus came and looked into the temple one evening, and he didn't deal with it there and then. He went away, and it wasn't till the next day that he actually dealt with it. And sometimes it is better, isn't it, to not react in the heat of the moment, particularly if strong emotions are involved. I like to think of of Jesus and to imagine how he must have felt walking into that temple and seeing people misusing that space, to see people taking advantage of other people, um, you know, getting money out of them, using that space for something it was never intended for. Can you imagine how angry Jesus was in that moment? And he doesn't deal with it then. He goes away and he comes back. He still expresses that anger, but not in the heat of the moment. And I think that's a good lesson in avoiding the risk of emotional hijack, the risk that in the heat of the moment we just react. And it's particularly interesting that 
we learn that Jesus did this because it says since it was already late. And I would say to you that in particular, be careful about strong emotions that happen at times when you are vulnerable to perhaps not thinking that straight. So at the end of the day in particular, when you're tired, when you're stressed, when other things have already happened, so you're already feeling a bit emotional. And we know that Jesus said that since it was already late, it was the next day that he reacted. So there is a message here about just being careful. One good way of avoiding our emotions leading us into sin is sometimes to delay how we react until that initial flare of emotion has gone down. And I, I worked a long time ago with, um, with a boss who taught me many good things, but the best piece of advice he ever gave me was that if you ever have um, something that comes in and you react to it and it's a difficult situation, he said, by all means, write the letter, write the email, whatever it is you need to do, but never send it until the next day. He said, always sleep on it, always give yourself a bit of time, 24 hours at least is great, and see how you feel. If you still feel the same way the next day, send the same letter. And you know, I hardly ever send the first letter or the first email that I write. It's good advice, isn't it? Sometimes, it may be that sometimes that we are reacting in the right way with our emotions and you can always go ahead and follow through that reaction. But for me, I find usually you get a bit better if you wait. And that's not to say that the emotion is, is disrupting my rationality. But you do have to be aware that in those moments, if you're very, very cross particularly or very, very anxious, you might not be thinking as clearly as you would at other times. The other message from this, of course, is that sometimes it is important to react. And Jesus' decision after taking that time out was still to go ahead and react. So when we say, you know, as Christians, we should all keep smiling and be all jolly ho, isn't this nice, and never get frustrated, never get angry, there are times when it's perfectly right and proper to give some expression to that anger. But we have to be careful about how we do it. This is the second example, looking at a different emotion. And this is another well-known example. I'm sure most of you will have uh, have heard of this. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, and what we know is that Martha and Mary came to see Jesus, and they told him that Lazarus was really ill a few days before. But by the time he's been able to leave and make the journey, she comes to him and says, it's too late, he's died, sorry, you know. And this is what John's Gospel tells us. It says that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And if there's any pub quiz uh, people here, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, if that ever comes up as a question. Just a useful tip. Also, crucial verse, though, Jesus wept. Very, very important piece of information, I think. So what can we learn about this passage? What does this teach us about how to deal with with that particular emotion? And the first one, again, is this message, react. Jesus takes the time to express what he feels. He takes the time to weep. I almost find myself wanting to say he indulges his emotion. But of course, it's not an indulgence. That's that's part of our thing of feeling guilty for being emotional. He reacts appropriately to the emotion that has been triggered by this event because this was a friend of his and he's dead and that's sad. So he cries. It's particularly interesting for Jesus that he does this even though he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And there's a big part of me that thinks that if I was in that context, I'd get there, they're all weeping and wailing, and I'd be like, yes, 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 stop all that noise, I'll just go and deal with it, and then it will all be fine. And sometimes we can be too rational, can't we? 
and push our emotions out. And Jesus doesn't do that. Even though he knows that the situation is about to improve dramatically, because, of course, he then walks into the tomb and comes out with Lazarus in an amazing, miraculous raising from the dead. He does react, though, to the sadness that's triggered by the fact that this friend of his has died. So don't be too rational. And don't suppress your emotions. Jesus does take the time to weep. He shows that emotion as a great leader of the church. I don't know if there's any church leaders here. You know, it's okay as a leader to sometimes show some emotions. Sometimes things do make you sad. Sometimes things make you angry. And that's, that's not always a bad thing. You don't have to be like the Spocks of this world. We don't want a church run by Spocks. <laughs> Let's look at the third example. And this is, obviously, we're coming up to Easter, a very, very poignant time for Jesus and a time when he experienced emotions, no doubt, beyond anything that any of us will ever experience because not only because of what he was going to go through, but because he knew that that was what was going to happen. And this is this moment when he knew that all of that was about to start to happen. And it says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but you will. And what can we learn from that example? And there is something very powerful there about giving yourself the time and the space to process your emotions. Jesus facing this incredibly painful emotion, instead of suppressing it and trying to ignore it and hope that he could manage to carry on in spite of it, gave himself time to process that emotion. He acknowledged how he felt, even though that was painful. He, He was able to verbalize in some way to his disciples just how awful he was feeling. And it's important that we do that. And of course, it's important that we do that not on our own. Jesus experiencing all this stuff didn't take himself off into a quiet place on his own. But it's interesting how he did that. First of all, he took all his disciples with him. But then as the emotions started to rise, he he stepped away and just the three closest came with him. And even then he steps away from them, but he says, stay here because I really need you to be nearby in effect. So seek that social support. We are not, any of us, designed to exist in a vacuum. God did not create humans to exist on their own. And just as Jesus did, it's important for us to have other people who care for us, to have some relationships, just two or three maybe, where we are able to be with people at the times when we feel the most difficult stuff. Most of our friendships won't be on that level, but just a few. And we need to help other people as well develop those kinds of relationships in their lives. Because it's one of the things that excites me so much about the church. Because if I was working as a psychologist in a, in a sort of clinical field, I wouldn't have this amazing resource to help to link them into people and relationships and places where they can make friends and practice making friends and sometimes make mistakes with that and get some support in that and experience a new kind of family and all of those things that if the church works well it can provide so that's a fantastic resource that we have so we need to help other people to learn about those relationships because outside the church a lot of people never get that kind of relationship with people and the third thing is is that we need to not worry too much if our emotions conflict with something that we know we need to do And this is Jesus, this is the Son of God, and he in effect goes to his Father in prayer and says, I'm not sure I can do this. If there is any other way 
that if there's any way that you can take this cup from me. And so the emotions that Jesus is experiencing in that moment are so powerful and so contrary to what he knows he has to do. But that's okay. And he's able to talk about that. And, of course, through prayer to process that. And sometimes our emotions trigger these difficult thoughts and feelings. And it's very important that we give ourselves the space to process that with other people, with God through prayer, just like Jesus did even if they conflict with something that we know we need to do. And that's that thing of sometimes when our emotions kick in, our immediate gut reaction is just, I I shouldn't be feeling this. It's not appropriate. I don't want to feel it. So we try and suppress it, and that doesn't work. It's not a healthy way to deal with our emotions, and it's not what Jesus did. So just to summarize, we're going to have some time for some questions in a minute, but emotions are very tricky, and this is a hugely complex area, and I know that there's some theology stuff, there's probably some stuff from the psychology and the other backgrounds that I haven't gone into in that much depth, but hopefully this has given us a flavor of what the function of emotions is, because the main lesson is that if we approach emotions in the right way, they're essential, and they can actually become our allies, not our enemies. If we are able to treat our emotions in the way they were designed to function, then we can find that they become helpful to us. And I want to end again just on this psalm because there is something so basic about emotions and about how we were created as emotional beings. And I believe that that's very powerful. I believe that sometimes God speaks to us through our emotions. And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, all emotions are bad. We shouldn't have them. So what we need to do, therefore, is think about how our emotions influence our actions and when that's both good and when that's bad. So what I'd like to do, if it's okay now, is just, just, just pray very quickly, and then we'll, we'll take some questions. I hope that's okay, but I know emotions are a difficult topic, so I would just like to pray before we end, and then we'll, we'll have some questions. And Father God, I thank you so much for this amazingly complex brain that you have created. I thank you that every single person in this room is an example of that amazing design and of your work and of something you have put together exactly the way you intended it to be. And Lord God, for anyone here who struggles with their emotions, for for the people who are represented by us here, people we care for back in our home churches, Father God, I want to pray for them and I ask that you would be with them. I ask that through gaining an understanding of what emotions are, you would ultimately lead them to freedom. And I praise you that you came to set us free, that emotions are not there to hold us down, but that you came to set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Uh, Does anybody have any questions? Okay. Um, I'll pass you the microphone if that's okay, because then for the tape, people can hear your questions. Um, obviously, emotions are a very um, tricky subject, and you've done very well explaining so much about it, but you've likened emotions very much as they should behave, like a match going off, and sort of given some analogies of where if the match carries on burning up all the paper, they're going on too long, or if you have them in an inert atmosphere, they don't go off until several of them all go off at once and set things ablaze as they shouldn't. But you also mentioned about Jesus saying about love, joy, and grief. And while you can have surges of emotions of that type, some of those emotions go on a lot longer, and they're supposed to. I'd like you to comment on that. And also uh, something you said about feeling a bit emotional as an expression as well. How do these things all relate to the matches? Thank you for that. It's a good question. 
There is an answer which takes about three or four hours, but I won't, I won't give you that answer. In, in, from a, a theoretical stance, what you're talking about is the difference between a mood and an emotion. But, I mean, in a way, that's just terminology. And an emotion in the sense of how we understand it, both neurologically in terms of what that looks like in your brain and biochemically in terms of what it looks like in the rest of your body is a short-lived thing. But you're right that there are, there are flavors to our life that go on longer than that, things like love, things that are linked so strongly with our dispositions and our thought processes as well, that they are not just that purely march, the match-catching-light effect. And I think, I think that they are very important, but in a way they're slightly different to the sorts of things that we're talking about here. And often they are the positive things as well. Negative emotions act in a slightly different way. So I think... You know, but does that sort of answer some of, the, some of the bits of your question there? Yeah. So when we're talking about things like love, often they are disposition. Of course, if you look at love, which is a very, very complex emotion, people will talk about different phases and about how very much the initial biochemical reaction does wear off after time. And that becomes, therefore, more of a deliberate frame of mind that you're aiming to bring in. So I would talk about that. And, of course, remembering that emotions are about biochemistry as well, in a way. They're about changes in our physiology. So when you talk about feeling a bit emotional, if we are generally stressed out and life is throwing a lot at us, then the levels of certain chemicals and hormones and things in our body rise naturally. And what that leads you to do is to be more emotional because it's a bit like if you think you have a sort of threshold and you, know, you literally get pushed over the edge and then you, 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 you find it difficult to cope. If, you, if your levels of stress or emotion are quite high anyway, it doesn't take much to push you over that. So sometimes on a bad day or if you're tired or something, you're already quite emotional. And, and I think some of that comes from genuine bio, biochemical changes in terms of what's going on for our bodies. Another question at the back. Thank you for that. Um, I just had a question about, obviously, the increasing prevalence of emotional problems. And it's clear that the, the burden of care for people struggling with anxiety, depression, young people, it's going up and up. And yet the access to services, sort of primary care, psychological therapies and primary care, is just appalling. And I wondered if you had any tips about how we can begin to explain concepts like this to people we encounter in church, um, to this, and what resources we can direct them towards. Right, that's another excellent question, and uh, I think that's that's very true. I mean, I, our church, we do a lot of work, work with people who are struggling with emotional problems, and we, we work very hard to connect them into the, the sort of assistance that is out there, but it is hard sometimes, and often it isn't there, and we have to help them find other sources of support. I would never underestimate the, the power of working through some of this stuff with people who are healthy. We'll often say, you know, uh, geez, you know we talk about how... You know, it's the people who are really sick who we come to talk to. But actually, there's a lot of value for all of us in learning about this stuff. And so with young people, for example, we've done some great work with one of our young people's groups looking at different emotions. What are those? What are emotions? How do we deal with them? And young people in particular who I work with have no concept at all on the whole of what emotions are. And basic things like if you've had a bad day and you're feeling low, what can you do to make yourself feel better? And they therefore are very much at the, at the mercy of all of the media and the influences which are telling them lots of fantastic ways to deal with their emotions. Talking to a, a young girl the other week who, who was, had recently started self-harming, and she was saying, well, I, I read that sometimes this helps. 
And it was the only thing I'd ever heard saying that something helped. And you think, well, gosh, that's true. Where do we tell young people what helps? And one of our jobs as, well, as parents, for those of us who are, but also within the church and as adults, is to help teach young people and adults who haven't been lucky enough to, 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 to be taught that themselves, what emotions are and how to deal with them in an appropriate way. So I think whenever we can do that, things like this are great. So. Uh, probably we, we have to be back for the next session at four. So, uh, 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 so um, I think just one more question and then we'll move on. Thank you. How, how do you deal with emotions that keep going around with negative thoughts and feeding that? How do you help someone with that? Excellent question. How do you, what do you do if your thoughts are going round and round and round in your head? And some people, because of their personality, are more prone to that than other people for, as a first start. So it normally is also linked with other things. So people who are very, very effective, who are often quite intelligent, get a lot done, things like that. So there's a good side if you struggle with that stuff. But it is very difficult. One thing I would say is that that's very fueled by anxiety. One of the ways that the, the changes in anxiety affect your brain is they make that thinking part of your brain very hyperactive. So your thinking can easily get very obsessional. So anything that is relaxation-based that helps you to bring down your overall anxiety level helps that to diminish. The other thing I would say is to, to look at what those thoughts are. And what CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, does is it encourages people to identify the, the, the common bad guys, if you like, in your thinking. For most people, it, there are four or five classic thoughts that, when they're feeling low, just plague them. And so to write to the... CBT takes you through a process of identifying those thoughts and challenging them. And that's why it's so effective in helping people who are struggling with emotional stuff. So some people find that very helpful as well. So I hope that's, that's some help, yeah. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day, what's left of it.